You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. I've got a real treat for you today. I've got Toby Green on the podcast. He's a British historian. He's senior lecturer in African history and culture at King's College London. He's just written uh, the award-winning A Fistful of Shells. I want to catch up with him to ask about African history, largely sub-Saharan West African, Central West African history, in the years and the centuries leading up to the arrival of the Europeans on the scene and the beginning of uh, the gigantic transatlantic trade in enslaved African peoples. It's a piece of history that we, we rarely cover on the podcast. It was an absolute treat to catch up with him and listen and learn from him. My own ignorance in the area was profound. This interview was filmed, as so many of our interviews are, and it will be going out on History Hit TV. It's the new Netflix for history. It's our new history channel. So please go and check that out. If you're listening to this podcast, you can use the code POD6, P-O-D-6. You get six weeks absolutely free of charge. What's going on at History at the moment? We're planning the next few months and we're going to be busy. So uh, looking forward to delivering all that new content. Lots of change going on. It's going to be fun. In the meantime, everyone, here is Toby Green. Enjoy. Toby, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. You've done a very uh, unusual and strange thing, which is you've just written a, a giant really important history book about a period of which and a place which just we I now realize there was a yawning gap in in English scholarship mm. yes and well did I did I write such a book I don't know I spent a lot of time years really uh wondering why the kind of history which I tried to write about in this book isn't better known and I realize it's one of the reasons is what you say that there just isn't that kind of accessible history which places West Africa in a, in a context which, not only in its, on its own terms, but which makes sense, as to a broad, makes sense to a broader public, which is what I've tried to do in this book. Um, and the period you, 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 you try and knit together um, a pre, is it right to call it, a kind of pre-European contact uh, West Africa with, with the opening moves of, of, of this... Well, no, what's, what's, what should I mean, West, Af- West Africa on its own terms, should we say, from yeah. like the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, which is where the book kind of starts in the early chapters. Uh, 
and is all, and and how West Africa is beginning to, if you like, globalize. That's right. Uh, even in that time, so even in the like twelfth century, you're finding traders from Basra in Iraq in in parts of West Africa. I was struck by how global the history was right from the beginning. Yes, and that's I think well, that's one of the things. One of the things I think which some readers might find surprising in the book. That yes, in this book you'll find people from it, uh, Basra and from Brazil and fr- and tr- you'll find West Africans trading in India or and this is the kind of thing that will come across in little places all the way through. Because again, with my ter- terrible blinkered European point, I-, I thought I was about to open a book that would be like reading about the Mesoamerican civilizations, and then suddenly the Europeans come and the whole thing falls apart. Mm-hmm. But in fact, from the opening pages, it's like, oh, you know, trade routes and, mm-hmm. and, and gold circulating, and this felt like a part of the world that was very, very connected. Yes, it was, and I think that is one of the, that's one of the important... I suppose rebalancing that the book tries to do that yes the, the, this wasn't a region which somehow emerged into history in the 16th 17th 18th centuries once the Europeans started trading da- down the West African coast and increasingly in, in slaves uh, it was a region which was already connected to uh, parts of uh, well the Ottoman Empire for example uh, to Saudi Arabia uh, to places like uh, Iraq to uh, and also interestingly connected to places in Spain and and southern Italy, even before the 15th century as well. So yes, it was a, it was a region which had uh, important trading and political connections in its own right before then, that's right. And I think that, and, that, and that's something which persisted throughout the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries as well. You actually find diplomats from, for example, the Kingdom of Dahomey uh, in Portugal or in Brazil in the 18th century. One of the bits you, uh, which I found fascinating was when I found this document which described the ambassadors of the Kingdom of Dahomey in Lisbon in the 1790s, the bill at the restaurant where they ate, they went to the opera house every night for a month and this kind of thing. And it, it's not the impression that if you like, school history syllabi have, have given us of West African history. That's one of the things that the book tries to, to look at. But we should. But it does have a unique geographical position with advantages and disadvantages in terms of trade and 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 state building that come from that. Like, tell me wh- why? Why? Uh, how does geography? Or how, how does how does the how do these empires and and uh, polities grow, flourish, and then decline in in the space we now call West Africa? Well, that's a very important question because uh, the. The, f- the things which affect the rise and fall in the way of, of these empires and kingdoms relate to changing geographies, for example, and uh, the expanding of dry seasons, which happens in the in the what we call the medieval period, but also from around 1630 onwards, that has a big impact on uh, po- politics in the region. Also, elements of geography such as the savanna areas of West Africa, which are more open to being controlled by cavalries and, and so on, which allow for bigger states and and regions nearer to the coast. Uh, because of the different geography there, have different types of political formations. So all those things are relevant, as also are the openings which trade offers or closes in, in that period as well. And those do... So West Africa, West African political systems arise on their own terms. But of course, like political systems all over the world, they're also related to other factors of, of trade and global connections. And the Sahara, uh, in terms of so sailing, it was quite hard to sail between... What we now call Morocco and West Africa was it? But so it was. We're talking about trans-Saharan trade. Yes. Yeah, so to start with, you have this trans-Saharan trade. That's right. And um, 
uh, for example, in the, 30 or 40 years ago, a lot of the history which was written about this, uh, particularly in Portuguese, actually talked about the conflict between the caravel and the caravan. Yeah. So you had the caravan, which obviously is the Saharan trade. And yes, the, you know, there were very complex networks. There are maps from the 14th century, actually, which show these networks crisscrossing the Sahara through the oases and, and, and so forth. And then, yes, from the start of the 15th century, the Portuguese begin to... Uh, sail down the coast of Morocco. They didn't actually have the navigational equipment, so the, the quadrants and such like, to make it easy to sail out of sight of land. That was one of the reasons. Once you sailed south of a particular cape, which was known as Cape Bojador at that time, you had to sail out of land to return to Portugal. That was one of the reasons that people didn't do that, uh, because they were terrified of it. Uh, so it took quite, so it took quite a long time uh, for this, for the, for the, if you like, the competition to really take shape between the caravan and the caravel. Uh, one of the things which is difficult, I think, with writing history over such a long period of time is that we can compress time. We can think, oh, you know, it was inevitable that in the course of the 15th century this would take place. Well, actually, you know, at the time it wasn't inevitable at all. You know, for people looking at it 50 years in the future was a hell of a long time as it is for us today. So I, I try to take account of that in, in the book too. Does racism bluntly, and the impact of the, and the shadow cast by the slave trade, where we think it's what technologically very sophisticated white people turning up and sort of dragging, you know, natives out of the bushes with no, you know, why, do, and then taking them out against their, their wishes to, to the new world. Has that, has that racist thinking allowed, um, discourage us from looking at the kind of sophistication of the kingdoms and, and polities that have gone before? Yes, clearly uh, African history has always been thought, uh, in Britain in particular, uh, for about 200 years through the lens of, of the history of slavery, since the abolition movement. In the abolition movement, you had, in the abolition era, you had set up uh, two obviously opposing camps. You had the, the pro-slavery movement, who portray, which portrayed Africa as a benighted continent and slavery was saving these people from, from that continent. Uh, and then you had the abolitionists who portrayed Africa also actually as a benighted continent, destroyed by the wars of the slave trade. Uh, which, uh, which ha and therefore you had to uh, st abolish slavery in order to ameliorate that. Of course, one of the ironies of, of, of that narrative is it set up a, an idea of African history as solely related to slavery, and it didn't allow any scope for any of the other elements of African history to, to come through, such as art, uh, literature, oral and written, uh, uh, archaeology, uh, sorry, um, architecture, uh, elements of technology and medicine, in fact, all of those things which you could write about and which there is evidence of which, wasn't, which weren't written about. Um, and of course, the other irony is that these wars were very much an offshoot of the state building process, just as they had been in Europe. Europe's uh, state building process in that period of history was also marked by innumerable wars and conflicts, just as, it was, just as was the case in Africa, which is one of the parallels which the book tries to look at. And, and then in that, in that case as well, why is it just a quirk of navigational technology? I mean, this is the, one of the big questions of history is why on earth do these like Western Europeans who've played no particular role in human history so far go and expand like a virus across the entire world in the space of 100 years? Why was it that these African states, uh, technologically advanced, culturally sophisticated, why did, why did they... Uh, um, uh, why, why, why did it prove so unequal? That's, that's a very good question. It, it's a, that's one of the reasons why the book looks at over a long period of time, because I think it's over a long period of time that you can get some answers to that question. To, to begin with, why, why was there an interest in that trade in the first place? Um, 
We have to remember that the coast at that time, where, where the Portuguese arrived in the, from the sort of mid-15th century onwards, was were, they, they were backwaters. They were provinces, sub-provinces of the central... Uh, Central, centralized hearts. So, for example, Senegal, which is where the Portuguese first arrived, the, the kingdoms around the coast there were provinces of the Empire of Mali, and so. And Mali um, was a, a would have faced north and east into the Arab. It world. was facing much more in right. those directions. That's right. And so, for, for, and so, but for the but, but for the but for the rulers, the viceroys of the of, of the provinces on the coast, it was it was to their advantage to trade with the Portuguese. They could begin to challenge and vie with the central power for supremacy, and that happened. For example, in Senegambia, it happened in the Kingdom of Congo as well with the province in Soyo. And there are various different examples of that. So there were reasons, so when we, start, when we start breaking down our idea of Africa, in quotes, to the different part, different constituent parts, you, that makes more sense as to why it was in some people's interests to, be, to, to begin trade. Uh, and then w how did this trade mesh with a rise in inequality between African and European political actors? The book makes a case that one of the reasons for that is is looking at this as a trade, looking at the history of money and how the types of money which were used in West Africa and which were traded by Europeans, so a lot of the early trade is in currencies, is in copper, iron, cowries, which are used as, as, as currencies in West Africa, and the value of those decline over time, whereas what Africa exported, which was gold to begin with, a lot of gold, and then subsequently captive labour, which was used to accumulate value in, in the Americas, grew over time. So that's, that's the case that the book makes as to why that led to a rise in inequality. And so when you look at these kingdoms, like the Kingdom of Mali, Kingdom of Congo, what are the sources like? What, what, why do, again, why do, uh, how hard is it for a historian to, to push aside the, that curtain of that sort of, that, that, that bookend of the slave trade and, and actually see what was going on in, before it? Another very good question. It, it can be hard. Uh, it, it depends. The, re the answer is different in different regions of West Africa. So Congo is a good case. So Congo, there's a huge amount of, uh, of written sources. The, the Congolese convert, uh, kings and ruling royal families converted to Christianity very early. A lot of them became literate in Portuguese very early and wrote impassioned letters mm. in Portuguese. And some Tragic. Of, yeah. Yes, and some of them also later in, in, in Kikongo from quite an early time. So we have those sources. And, and, and some of those uh, sort of recounted oral histories of the foundation of the kingdom from an early time too, but at that time in the, in the, in the late 1400s, in the 1500s. So we have, so the Congo is, is very well documented from that time. Uh, Mali, we have a lot of Arab accounts in Arabic of Mali uh, dating from the 13th century, 14th century, and more manuscripts are being found. Uh, we discussed before actually, Dan, you've been to Timbuktu, you saw some of those, and uh, there are more of those being found. Uh, and then there is a, a history in most of West Africa is an oral genre. It's retained orally and sometimes, and I've had this experience myself, uh, it's possible to corroborate oral and written sources from an early time, from the 16th century even, but that, that's a slow process. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. 
Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. And and what are, what are what are the what are the boundaries of of these West Africa? I mean, because with Western Europe, it's it, it's relatively straightforward. It's bounded by sea, and um, but with with in, in with these West African kingdoms, are, are, what is the limit on their geographical expansion to the to the, to the east and to the south? That's that's important. Yes. Uh, it's often related to resources and accessibility, really. So, to the so the savannah is a key area. Uh, most of the important kingdoms which arise in West Africa arise in savannah regions. So, you have uh, Mali, which arises in part, partly in a savannah region. Oyo, for example, in southern Nigeria, arises in a savannah region. So, often the spread of savannah grasslands and areas, therefore, which are quite e- both uh, give you a lot of cultivable land, but also are easy to uh, militarily control. That's very important. Because it's um, easy to move large modules of easy, horsemen yes, across. that's them. right. Yeah. And, and the cavalry was very important in, in, in West African warfare from an early times, from before uh, when the Europeans arrived. Um, and so those are important elements. Uh, and then, I th- and then the, moving, the, the moving boundaries of the Sahara, I think, and how those affect trade routes uh, would, would, to the north would be very important elements as well. Uh, and those do shift over time. As I say, there were dry periods in the medieval period that kind of seemed to have stopped in the middle of the 15th century and, and there seems to have been a wetter period, uh, but then became more significant, particularly in the 18th century. And some historians relate those dry periods to the increases in warfare, uh, which occurred then as well. The breakdown of irrigation and things like that. Yes, and then obviously harder to uh, to feed large populations and, and the discord that that can provoke. So wh- when we're thinking about uh, the arrival of, of Europeans, uh, what 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 did they they were arriving into literal areas and finding kind of willing accomplices who who they realised that would well, yeah that's a good question were they it's hard to generalise I mean or the, the, one of the important things to remember about Europeans is what, I think I write it well in, in the introduction book one of the dangers of using of using just European sources is this idea that the Europeans were more important than they were of course they were hugely important 
in some ways, but in other ways, most of them dropped dead within six months. Uh, and uh, the ones that survived, one of their survival mechanisms was really usually to form African families. They would marry locally, often with well-connected wives, uh, and then there, and, and and it was often the children of, of those of those unions who would then often become important traders and brokers, linking yeah, European ships as they arrived and African trading and political systems. So, um, and in and, and so you could say, I suppose, when you say they found willing accomplices, in a way. You could say they helped to create, with their marriages with African uh, people, uh, a, a trading classes who became important brokers and became willing accomplices. Uh, so that, 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 that kind of creolized population was a very important part of the trade. And you find that in Senegal and Gambia. You find it in, on the Gold Coast in Ghana. Uh, you find it in various parts of West Africa. What is um, African society, West African society and politics... Uh, more familiar than, say, Cortes found uh, Aztec. Yes, I think, I think in many ways they were. Um, I think that, uh, well, for, uh, you can start with the arrival of the Portuguese in Senegambia in the 15th century. I mean, there, there's, there's a shared language there, Arabic. Uh, Arabic is, is spoken in the, in, the, in the Iberian Peninsula. It's also, uh, you know, Islam has reached Senegam, Senegal by then. So you have, uh, and, and Arabic becomes a shared lingua franca. And in fact, there seems to have been lingua franca between the Portuguese and West African peoples as far south as what's now Guinea-Bissau at that time. So that immediately obviously does create some kind of uh, shared territory. Uh, there was a, a quite accurate map uh, done in 1375 by a, cart uh, a cartographer from Mallorca called Abraham Cresquez of West Africa. So there was knowledge of West Africa in some parts of Europe before then. So I think that clearly, which obviously wasn't the case with Mesoamerica at all. So I think uh, there were elements of of commonality. Um, and, and also an important thing to remember is one of the reasons the Portuguese started sailing down the West African coast, so they said, was to try and form an alliance with this mythical king, oh, Prester right. John, a Christian, a Christian get, king. To get back to the Holy Land. That's right. So, that, so there was a knowledge of, a sense that there, that it, that there were some areas in common uh, for the 15th century. We're, we're, we're so guilty uh, of referring to uh, West Africa as sort of West Africa. How, how politically uh, diverse is it? Com do, do you see the same in the period before Europeans arrived? Do you see the same, you know, the, whether, whether it's the Roman Empire or the Frankish Empire? Do you see these really big territorial units develop in, in, in the area we call West Africa? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think, um, it, again, it depends on the period. You, you start to see them emerging, particularly from uh, the 11th century onwards. You have the, the, the Empire of Ghana, as it was called, which is located, which centre was in what's now Mauritania. Uh, and that controlled really quite a large area, including areas of, of what's now Senegal and Mali. Then you have the Empire of Mali, which arises in Mali and controls to the Atlantic coast, areas of what would be now Burkina Faso, Timbuktu to the north on the, on the Niger Bend. And then, and, then you, and then in the 15th century, you, have a really you get starting some very important political changes before the Europeans arrive. So, for example, in northern Nigeria, what's now northern Nigeria, Kano becomes a really really crystallizes its power at that time in Nigeria and it's connected to areas really quite far south in Nigeria towards the Atlantic coast uh, and all of these and you have a, a in Burkina Faso you have a, the rise of an empire a, an empire called Mossi you have a lot of changes in that time um, so what, what's driving those changes in the 15th century? Well, some people have said it might have been the impact of the Black Death uh, in, in, in West Africa. Others have looked to shifting environmental patterns and shifting trade routes. Um, but, these, but, the, but I think the key thing is these things are all happening 
internally directed uh, in response to some of these changes. You know, before the Europeans arrive, it's not it's not as if they're somehow in response to the Europeans. These are active systems when the Europeans arrive. What about um, if you mention these empires and, and where they're centred? Um, why have I not? Why do I not know enough about? Why, why am I ignorant as to? the archaeology left behind, the, the sort of heritage... Fasc- there are some fascinating uh, monuments in West Africa. A lot of them are in ruins. Not, I mean, uh, I, I saw a talk a few years ago given by an archaeologist who'd worked in Burkina Faso on a, on a, an, a huge ruins called Loropeni, which are virtually unknown outside Burkina Faso. And, there, and there's a, a number of those. I mean, for example, one of the main trading centres in the Gambia river region was a place called Cantora, which was where the, the Atlantic system with the Portuguese were de- trying to develop met the Saharan system and, and it, I know people quite well in Gambia it's well known where this place is so it's never been it's never been excavated and so one of the one of the causes of this is lack of funds um, for excavations in West Africa uh, and and also uh, as, in some ways also just the general way in which history is a, a, as the, the distant African past is not really been prioritized either in some ways either in or outside Africa actually now, is that because we, it, it was deeply inconvenient for people to say that the, these cultures that in Africa were sophisticated, developed because of this, because of the rationale for slavery? We, we are going to take people against their world, we're going to enslave these people. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's okay because they are, they are incapable of self-rule, they're incapable of building the kind of institutions and, and, and political association that we have in Europe. Yeah, from the European side, it didn't fit with the imperial myths, essentially. So it, was, it wasn't part of, of, of history as, as the textbooks were developed during, during the history of the European empires in Africa. I think since independence in, in Africa, various things... I mean, actually, in the 60s and in the, into the 70s, there, was, there were... In Nigeria, for example, at the University of Ibadan and in, in Senegal, the University of Sheikh Antajop, there were really serious uh, schools of historians working on that. But since the 80s, uh, decline of funds available to universities in Africa, uh, difficulties in conducting research, uh, getting hold of visas to come do research in European archives, all these things have tended to undermine the, uh, the research into the distant African past in, uh, in, African, in history departments in African universities. Well, you do find this, in, obviously, in archaeology departments. But... All of those factors have meant that even in Africa, history is a subject which has been in decline. Uh, In fact, for example, it was taken completely taken out of the secondary school syllabus in Nigeria for about seven years until 2016. So that's uh, sort of, in a way, that's another thing which, in the end, made me think that writing, trying to write a book like this, would be could be you know something which I ought to do because it's not simply a case of Westerners haven't got access to this history. As I say, increasingly, it's also the case actually in West Africa. You mentioned Nigeria. There's going to be a billion more Nigerians in the next 40 years or something, I see from The Economist. So do, um, do, does this feel like a part of the world that is, that is um, in which history, like in the way that Chinese people have been rediscovering their history and, and politicising their history and, and weaponising their history over the last 30 years, is, are we going to see that, do you think, in, in West Africa? Is, is, is it going to be quite a dynamic time? I think there's a possibility that it could, and, and I, I, I certainly hope that that's the case because um, there's still a lot of work to be done. And as I say, it has been a subject which has been really under threat. I mean, as everywhere in the world, you know, STEM subjects are, are prioritised by governments, and that's certainly been also been the case in West Africa in the last 10 or 15 years. And also because, you know, when we look at some of the broader factors which today link, uh, link West Africa to other parts of the world, and, and for example, the way in which... Um, European governments look at questions of migration and what's driving people to to leave, try and leave West Africa. Well, there are lots of reasons, but I think without a 
a true sense of, of 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 the deeper history of the African past, it's hard it's hard for people to not not to think that somehow the future will be better somewhere else. And I think actually that sense of in, of, of developing that awareness is actually really fundamental uh, in the educate you know within education systems not only for the African diaspora say in Europe but also in West Africa itself. I got to, I'm afraid I'm going to ask you this question. It's really mean uh, to end up with, but um, I get asked really actually increasingly now when I do public events about returning uh, treasures, uh, quote unquote, that were looted or bought or, or purchased or, or any um, got in any way uh, and stuck in British museums. And for some, we, we think almost West Africa is, we think of that as an area probably that suffered more than most in terms of the, the loss of its uh, portable antiquities. Uh, what is your sense, and w- w- when you're out there working, I mean, do you think that there is going to have to be some, is, 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 is the, the physical, not just the archaeology of the places, the, the archival stuff, but are the physical objects going to be really important in that story? And, and, and are, they gonna, are we going to face increasing pressure to send them back? You can tell so many stories from an object. Funnily enough, I was at a meeting at the British Museum this morning where we went to the African ruins. We described, we just, in that meeting, we talked precisely about all the stories that some of the objects in the Africa Rooms the British Museum can tell. You know, if those objects aren't present in the areas where they originated from, there are fewer stories which can be told and, few, and fewer ways for young people there to connect with some of the things I was talking about. So I think clearly that has to be the direction of the travel in, in you know, into the future. And I'm sure that if, as you said, and as may be an aspiration, history does become more important within the way in which uh, educa- you know, education systems develop in West Africa, that's going to be a demand which we, we see more and more of. Well, in the meantime, they got your book. Okay. Which is, and I, is this book being, um, is it receiving a big audience in West Africa as well as... Well, a friend wrote to me from Gambia to say that the, 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 the main bookshop in Gambia had already, had sold out. So that was encouraging. Wow. So I hope so. Well, I'm sure that's West Africa's listening to this podcast, who okay. will snap it up now as well. Thank you very much, Toby Green. A fistful of shells. Um, thank you. Thank you very on. much, Dan. Thank you, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's a tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.